News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Alex Brooklyn. I'm here with hosts Harry Siegel, who's in an undisclosed location somewhere in New York. Oh. And in Brooklyn, Professor Christina Greer. Hello. This episode, we're taking a break from having mayoral candidates on. Later in the episode, we talk to Rachel Holiday-Smith of the city about affordable housing. And then after that, we have the People's Podcast. Uh, FAQ has teamed up with some NYU students who go out to find man-on-the-street responses to some of the candidates' policy initiatives. So this week, they're asking everyday New Yorkers what their opinion is on some of the policies that Diane Morales went through on our episode of FAQ, where we had her as a guest. So one thing that really stood out to me from that interview uh, was Diane saying that she didn't know what Kendra's law was. Days after that, we had this, this horrific tragedy with uh, two people being killed and two others stabbed on the uh, trains by a mentally disturbed um, homeless person. The people he was attacking were also homeless. De Blasio responded to that by saying he's going to put 500 more police into the uh, subway system. Uh, The acting head of of the subway system, which answers to the governor in the state, says she wants 1,500 police officers there. A lot of advocates and some of the mayoral candidates are saying uh, police aren't going to fix any of this and that that's never going to get to the root causes. But we do seem to be in a sort of nightmare echo mode uh, as the pandemic goes on and as de Blasio plays out the string and plays for time where uh, these issues sort of keep repeating in, in, in strange and sometimes amplified and distorted form. We're also deep into the uh, these, these mayoral candidates talking about a lot of this and at a point where as they've been going on and on, uh, I, I think a lot of New Yorkers are just beginning to pay attention um, to that race. Uh, one last thing about Kendra's laws and what makes it complicated with how we live now with COVID, <clears throat> a lot of individuals who are mentally ill and either homeless or in a lower income bracket, their in-person visits have been suspended. So that's definitely another part of this really unfortunate and sad puzzle. Uh, You had the young man who was nude, who pushed another person into the subway a few weeks ago, who had been off of his meds uh, for some time because he was in the shelter system. And when you Zoom call in with your social worker and they just say, well, we don't know where that person is, I assume that person doesn't then get their visit and they're not able to. Uh, Kendra's Laws makes it so that through a court procedure, you can have someone have to take their medication. But who's going to who's checking up on that right now? This is the same problems we see with domestic violence, child abuse and people who are on AOT taking their medication. Like there's very few in-person check-ins. AOT is basically what came out of Kendra's Laws where you can take a person who has a severe mental illness and have it, if they do not take their medication or whatever 
form of check-ins, then they are able to be like picked up, you know. Assisted outpatient treatment. Yes. Which, which in, in effect means uh, often compulsory outpatient treatment as this plays out the same way Kendra's law is, is compulsory medication for people who are not being held in institutions. And it, you know, it's taking someone's agency away. So it's a big process in court. So a lot of these candidates are talking about focusing more on supportive housing, what they're going to do. De Blasio talked a lot about that and was not entirely successful, but it's unclear what shape all of this is going to take. Uh, Andrew Yang was suggesting that maybe the issue here is making sure that sports fans are safe now that Andrew Cuomo has reopened arenas to 10% capacity when they go to uh, Madison Square Garden and to the Barclays Center is an extremely indirect way of saying, um, hey, are the police going to do anything about these scary and crazy homeless people in these stations? Other candidates uh, just want to talk about the danger that the police pose most immediately. And, and all this is, is unclear. Of course, the, the state of the pandemic when we get through all this and into 2022 is also an open question. Um, Chrissy, can you fill our listeners in on the uh, mayoral panel that you moderated last night and your impressions of that? Right. So I moderated a mayoral forum for Community Voices Heard. Our um, executive director is Afia Atamensa, who's been a guest on our podcast in the past. And this was a forum, unlike the dozens of other forums that many of the candidates have already participated in, because the central focus was issues relating to Black women. And so many of the questions, you know, asked about, say, COVID preparedness, some were even about CUNY, um, small businesses but the candidates were supposed to center Black women in their responses. And so it was the top seven candidates, Maya Wiley, Diane Morales, uh, and then Scott Stringer, Andrew Yang, Eric Adams, Ray McGuire, and Sean Donovan. So Catherine Garcia was not in attendance. She's been on the podcast before. And some of the other sort of, I would say, tier two candidates weren't in attendance. So it was just the seven. And some candidates clearly cannot center Black women in any of their responses. I asked them to sort of throw out their stump speeches. But obviously, as the the night went on, uh, many candidates just kind of fell back into their talking points. Uh, The way it was structured, because there's so many candidates and because CVH wanted to sort of center some of the women uh, who work uh, with CVH and who are members, there wasn't uh, a section where we necessarily followed up with the responses which obviously there are pros and cons to both. Sometimes your statement is your statement, right? Uh, And so lots of members could see you were asked a question and you couldn't center Black women. And so there's no need to kind of follow up and dig and poke and prod. Uh, Then there were certain, you know, responses that were a little vague that obviously, hopefully in other forms, we'll continue to dig deeper. Could you rank, like, could you rank the candidates by uh, responses, like from, you know, cool to not cool? I mean... Let's just put it, I didn't think that Sean Donovan or Andrew Yang or Ray McGuire could center Black women in any of their responses. It was either stump speech or sort of generalities. You know, it's it's hard when you're a moderator because I'm paying attention to a lot of other things. So I'm like half listening. You know what I'm saying? Because um, I'm, I'm paying attention to time, <laughs> which I was pretty strict about because we're doing these things, you know, constantly and, and folks don't need to have a filibuster. I thought Eric Adams oftentimes made a lot of the responses about himself. He's like, hey, bud, we're talking about black women. He's like, 
well, I think. And I was like, okay. Um, so a lot of the stories were personal stories. Um, I think Maya Wiley and Diane Morales definitely felt comfortable in a space, you know, for and by Black women. So there's probably a built-in energy that both of them felt. Um, it's interesting just because, you know, I don't know how authentic some, like, I can't speak for the members, but I don't know how authentic the members found Maya Wiley or Diane Morales. Many of them know Diane Morales for many, many years. So maybe they see her as, you know, sort of a, a de facto. She she said it was time. She's like, I am a member, right? So, I mean, the level of comfort she had probably was a lot more genuine than, say, you know, I don't know how the members felt about Maya Wiley. It could have gone one of two ways. They're really enamored by this super smart Black woman who is running for mayor, or they could be like, who is she and why have we met her before? And so, like, I think time will tell. I'm, I, you know, I know that they do surveys afterwards, so I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I'm always curious. I was on um, a WhatsApp chat with my students, you know, because we're online learning. Uh, we have WhatsApp chats where we can talk throughout the week and, you know, publish articles and have kind of a second level of conversation since we don't see each other in the halls and the dorms and things like that. And so some of my students were on the call, uh, which was interesting. And so they tended to, like... Maya, Diane, Yang, and Adams. Those were the four big, uh, big hits. And what is it they liked in particular about uh, Yang and Adams? Um, Yang, they just like this this creativity. They think that they said that he's like always kind of like thinking about new ways to solve a problem, even if you know that that way has been done before, is currently being done, or has no feasibility of getting done. Um, and that's a little, that's a little your editorializing on top of the, oh, yeah. is that fair? <laughs> Oops, that's me. Um, but so they just, they like the creativity. Um, but you know, they're, they're like, in, this is intro to politics. So like there's certain things where it's like, that's been done. Like we are doing it. Right. So like they think some of his ideas are new ideas and some, it's a policy already in play or something that, you know, he wants to do. It's like, that's actually not possible because it's the state government or something like that. You know, on TV, they, they used to have that thing, like, uh, I think NBC, they're like, um, every summer they'd be like, if you haven't seen it for the reruns, it's new to you. Right. You know, tune in. Right, exactly. Yang reminds well, I, me of I that. Think, I, think that's, I think that's the issue that I have with Yang and McGuire, because they feel like they're brand new to New York City politics. They're like, oh my gosh, I've discovered this really interesting thing. It's like, oh, tell us about it. It's like, okay, so there's like this subway that takes people from like point A to point B. Like... I've discovered it. It's amazing. And I'm just like, oh, wow. Thanks for joining us. So I, I just feel like the two of them are constantly coming up with policy ideas where it's like, dude, we've been debating this like literally for years. You know, what was interesting, actually, was who has an IDNYC. And I know that, you know, a lot of folks think that that's a minor issue. But the reason why I'm harping on it is because when Mayor de Blasio, and I give him credit when credit is due, but when he asked us to get IDNYCs to protect our neighbors... Some of us did that. Like we did, I don't, I didn't have to get an IDMIC. I have a driver's license and an active passport, but I did it because the mayor asked me to do it to protect our undocumented neighbors. And so I'm fascinated by the vast majority of candidates. I think it's Scott Stringer and um, I think Maya Wiley are the only two who have it. So I, I think I was surprised that Diane Morales didn't have it. I was thoroughly not surprised that Andrew Yang, Sean Donovan and Ray McGuire didn't have it. Um, Because I didn't, they weren't really in New York necessarily during those times. And if they were, they weren't participatory, as their voting records have shown for McGuire and Yang. 
But I did think that Diana Morales would have it just because of the work that she's done, like, on a consistent basis. So I think that, honestly, was probably, like, one of the shockers for me. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there's so many forums. I think going back to your original question, Harry, it's like, how do we start to dig deep? I think there was only one shot fired, really, in the whole forum, which is when Eric Adams was like, you know, unlike some people who were in the Hamptons, <laughs> I was, in, you know, in my office with a sleeping bag. So I think that was the only kind of flex. Everyone else, you know, Yang, I'm so glad you're feeling better. And, you know, there was lots of talk about um, Andrew Yang's wife and sort of real camaraderie uh, amongst the candidates, which is always great to see as far as, you know, civility and decency and humanity. Um, but that's also not a policy conversation necessarily. It was just a, a human being conversation, which is always great because you want your leader to to have some sort of compassion for others. You know, we saw what it looks like to have four years under the president who who is unable and unwilling to do that. But I, I mean, I'm curious as to what's the value added with so many forums because there's such a limited time to to follow up, because there's such a limited time to have a series of cross conversations amongst the candidates. Are people getting forum fatigue? I mean, clearly. Yeah. And I think the candidates are the 200 people are listening and the you know, the nine candidates are absolutely. Right. But you know why I think all these forums are a good thing though? The one thing that I think is good is that this is also a stamina conversation. And it's like and if you can't do a whole bunch of forums every night, then maybe the job of New York City mayor is not for you. Like, the New York City mayor doesn't get to go home to Gracie Mansion at 5 o'clock and just be like, whew, that was a long day. I'm done. It's like, no, you know what? There are going to be many days, most days, where your day ends at 11 or 12 o'clock because that's what being the mayor of New York City requires. So the one good thing for me, at least, is like, if if you realize that you can't hang with this setup, then this ain't the job for you. And just bow out now and, like, save us some time and some headache. The timing of this race, as we've talked about a bunch on the show, has been very weird because the primaries moved up till June. It's ranked choice voting for the first time. Nobody's gone up on TV yet. Uh, what, March, April, May, June, so four months out at this point. Only only a couple of the candidates have got their matching funds yet. Maya Wiley did not hit that threshold after saying that she was going to, which probably no big deal since no one's up on TV yet as a practical matter, and she will almost surely hit it next month. Uh, but in terms of, of, of indicating, again, like the sort of different sorts of things you need to do to show you're up for this large job, that's like a, a hurdle that she did not clear. And after setting expectations, that she would. Um, Andrew Yang, the Daily News has a good story, missed an, an interesting form last night, a form that had been sponsored by, by Muslim groups, and he missed this while appearing on the uh, Making Sense podcast hosted by Sam Harris, who, who's like a free thinker. People define all these things differently, but he, he's somebody farther to the right and outside of the New York sphere. Podcast guy who said some nasty stuff about Muslims, whose podcast was actually very significant for launching Yang's presidential race. And he missed this local forum the Muslim groups put together to be on that podcast. And apparently after telling the forum, he'd missed it because, you know, he's, he's sick and home recovering. Um, after, after you know, campaigning in person a lot, more than other candidates coming down with COVID and having to isolate himself, which ends Thursday morning for Yang. But my, my only thought on these forums is too many candidates, 
there's no friction here, right? Like no one has to get from place to place. The candidates don't, uh, reporters don't. So you have multiple ones in the night. And not all that much friction between the candidates because I think everyone's trying to avoid direct head-to-head clashes, at least until TV ads are up and more voters are paying attention. So these have been interesting and useful in a lot of ways. And you get to see people who really care in different groups who, who, who's willing to show up at these forums, who's willing to center their concerns, who comes in prepared, where Maya Wiley, for instance, I, I give very good marks to. Um, Catherine Garcia is another one. She consistently shows up at these different things with specific and granular information uh, in, in a way that some of these guys don't. And they, they just sort of lean on their uh, existing talking points and their shtick. But what I'd like is some way to isolate candidates one-on-one and force them to interact with each other and press each other a bit. And last thing I'll say here is this makes me miss the, the old lousy machines a bit. Uh, one of the things they were good for was sort of forcing a thinning of the field. And there are issues mm-hmm. with that. But the, the, the final you weren't going to have, even in 2013, when it was a big crowded field and Wiener ends up jumping in, you have basically five major candidates in the primary, which is a lot. You know, we have almost double that this time around. It's just very hard to, to get to significant answers. Like when you're moderating, there's a ton of just timekeeping and I've really got to hold you to your 90 seconds here. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can't do that many follow-ups because we're, we're all trying to keep this clock. And, and uh, it, it really amplifies the power of name recognition. Yeah. Um, when you can't get into anything uh, deeper or richer, which is its own problem. So I've been I've been thinking about that, Harry, because, you know, well, going back to your Yang statement and him missing the forum. I mean, I think part of the beef that I and some others have with Yang is that he's really comfortable playing footsie with really repugnant people. And then sort of this like, oh, I didn't know. It's like, yeah, you knew. Like, you know who these people are. Like they oftentimes CC you on Twitter. So like you're well aware. So cut it out. Like, either double down and just say, like, I don't mind hanging out with, like, white nationalists or anti-Muslim activists or whomever, or don't do it. So, like, that's my issue with him and his supporters, which we know are just repugnant repugnance. Um, So that's one. Two, I think with the forum, as I'm trying to think about ways that we can, like, get people to sort of stop talking in, like, you know, ice cream sandwich fantasy land with some of these policies, is like, is it that they have to fill out like hyper-detailed mayoral forums to qualify and then we hold them to what they have written and then ask them questions specifically from the page. So it's like, you said here, the question was about like, you know, homelessness or SHSAT or affordable housing. Like I asked a specific question and you wrote this paragraph or your people wrote it, whomever, hopefully you read it before they turned it in. And then I can ask you about what you wrote. Kind of like comprehensive exams for those of us who have had to take those god-awful things, right? You So you have the written, and then you have the oral where you're examined on what you wrote on the written. I mean, the best person who, to, in my opinion, to have a lot of experience that is probably Scott Stringer. I mean, he's very used to committing things to paper and then backing it up. So whenever he comes on FAQ, I'm sure he's going to be a lot more comfortable fielding things outside of the talking points. And I think a, a big problem with this forum fatigue is that it's almost reinforcing this rehearsed talking point that most people can't get around. So whereas uh, Stringer puts out, you know, some comprehensive overhaul of like public safety as comptroller, 
you know, you can ask him like, hey, are the cops in the schools, if you're going to take them out, who is going to be allowed to break up fights? Is that private security? Eek, we all know how that ends up. Um, you know, and, and he's going to have the the knowledge to kind of just answer that question or avoid it. And you're going to know right. someone like him what he's doing. Whereas like Yang, now I don't hate him as much as you do, but not. I don't hate anyone. Like, I just need the next mayor of New York City to understand New York City. I don't, I don't have, <laughs> I have a more I could have more hope for him than you do. But what I am saying about Yang is that it was like really clear. He did not have the base, like the knowledge base to field those questions totally. in a way where he already knew what you were saying. And he, right or wrong, had an opinion about it. He was still kind of struggling with, a, oh, I'm going to look over here. There's 35,000 cops, right? Yep. Well, got because that one part right. of the issue is that he hasn't thought about the issues of New York ever. Until someone put the idea in his head that he should run for mayor. He wasn't thinking about this stuff when he ran for the presidency. He wasn't thinking about this when he was running, what is the the test prep program that I would like to know something about, by the way, right? And like, A, not just the financials, but B, what the hell does that even mean? This like test prep and sort of the inequities in childhood education. But my issue is this. I don't need slash want anyone who has thought about being mayor 30 minutes ago and it's just like, well, I can kind of bluster my way to June because I've got like a pearly smile and like a starched white shirt. Like that to me is really dangerous in this particular moment. Going back to By plans, the way, did you because, all notice they were all dressed alike? All the men were oh dressed Oh my alike God. Well, twinsies is a big theme of this race. And I have to say that. Uh, That's the title of this episode, Adam. <laughs> Ray McGuire has, has better starched shirts, better lighting. Like, you know, but not a better good. microphone. No, no. Microphone <laughs> problems were a thing last night. I was like, hey, whispers, what's going on? I was like, are you doing this a so we can either lean in or not hear what you're saying? Because I'm not exactly sure what you're saying, except the for the fact that they're you know, so sweet to each other. There are so many uh, zooms together. It's like, hey, Ray, you just need to turn your microphone up a bit. It's hard to hear you. Thank you. Right. <laughs> <sighs> My my favorite quote, and this is just a, a huge Russian nesting doll of stuff, is in Rebecca Traster's profile of Maya Wiley in New York Magazine. Monica Klein says, I am a single-issue voter, and my single issue is, can you get money out of Cuomo or not? Mm. You can put out as many transit plans, housing plans, and education plans as you want, but every plan is bullshit because we are fully broke and Cuomo won't fund the uh, city. Anyways, I, I love that. And then FAQ guest Eliza Shapiro said on top of that, which I thought was just beautiful and speaks to this moment. Honestly, quote, every plan is bullshit is the smartest thing anyone has said about the mayor's race in a long time. And I feel like our job, all of us, the, the, the journalists and the people are paying attention, is to make these plans not bullshit. So, so the people really are saying things that they can be held to that will matter if they're actually elected mayor. Um, and, and to set up some sort of, of significant public record, because otherwise this is all just a, um, a bogus exercise. Well, I think it's really fascinating, Harry, that so many of the candidates looking at Donovan, McGuire and Yang are hell bent on saying, you know, I'm friends with Kamala and, and Joe. I can call them up on the cell phone. You know, in Ray's case, I introduced Kamala to New York. I was like, that's a bold claim. But hey, you know, I'm just going to let it ride. But no one is really talking about 
well, how do you feel about Andrew and how does Andrew feel about you? Because we know that Andrew Cuomo did not flex on Mike Bloomberg the way that he normally does because Mike Bloomberg's a billionaire and he knows that he would not win that debate in whatever capacity. Bloomberg would just start a whole campaign in Albany and like, you know, some, you remember the soda wars? <laughs> Those commercials on Jesus. air. I mean, that woman slamming the refrigerator like, you're trying to take sodas away from my babies. I mean, like, Bloomberg could finance any sort of policy revolution against Cuomo if he wanted to. Cuomo knew that, so Cuomo behaved accordingly. The question is, with all these candidates, Cuomo is not coming up, and I think he needs to be in the shadow. You know, like I'm a moderator of the event. I don't, you know, dictate sort of the agenda of particular organizations that I work with. I just, I'm there as they're like chatty Cathy. But I think I'm hoping a lot more of the forums will essentially make Cuomo another candidate. So it's like, how are you going to deal with this man? Because we all know that Andrew Cuomo, he behaves poorly when he's put into a corner, just like Donald Trump. He does not apologize, just like Donald Trump. He likes to steamroll, just like Donald Trump. He can be very abusive to people, just like Donald Trump. So it's like, even though he's a Democrat, he has some character and personality flaws that are egregious. And how do you plan on getting $5 from this man? Because we also know if he doesn't like you, you don't get anything, Bill de Blasio. Like, if he doesn't respect you, he tries to make your life a living hell, Bill de Blasio, right? So of all the candidates who are out here, I want to hear how do you plan on working with Andrew Cuomo who can just decide that, you know, he's he's done playing with de Blasio and batting him around like, you know, he's the cat and de Blasio is the mouse and get a new toy, which could be the 110th mayor of New York City. And a lot of that comes down to knowing stuff because this is right. one of those interesting splits where it's very hard to say on the record in public at a mayoral form how you're going to deal with, with the governor who is obsessed with being the alpha in New York at all times. Maya Wiley's had a couple of good lines about how, uh, hey, you know, maybe, maybe it would help to get done with this stupid swinging dick contest. We've had my phrase, but her point to ha- have a mayor is differently equipped. And I think there's actually something to that argument, but it's tricky. And, and it is, it's, it's very hard to campaign on that. Uh, de Blasio tried to do some of this openly as a candidate. Um, and then in that long stretch between September Right when he won the primary, he was going to be mayor in January, and he got into office where he's like, "You need to give me this money, Cuomo, for uh, pre-K. It was going to be a you know a cup of coffee a day that was going to transform the city." Cuomo, <laughs> at the run the next year, was furious. You know, didn't give him the money, never gave up the money, and the next mayor has to really think about how they're going to do that. Um, shifting devilish details just for one moment, Rachel Holiday Smith had this terrific piece in the City last week that was just super striking about how. The richest neighborhoods in New York actually lost housing over the uh, past decade. And the thrust of it is that, yeah, there was new construction in places like the Upper East Side, all places like the Upper East Side. But you had so many people combining units, right, like rooming houses becoming townhouses and like people combining two and three and four apartments and stuff like that, that the uh, net sum of housing actually went down despite that new construction over the decade, which is just a sort of staggering thing and, and, and very much fits into a, a rich-get-richer frame. Anyways, uh, Alex had her on the phone earlier this week to talk about this and a bunch more. It's actually a really interesting conversation. Um, let's jump in. 
Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm talking to Rachel Holiday-Smith, who works for The City. Uh, she covers Manhattan and all things housing. She's also going to be hosting a mayoral forum, but one that actually you should pay attention to. Can you tell me a little about that? Yes. So it's actually a mayoral forum that's happening on February 27th. So it's a week from Saturday. And it's about tenant issues. So it's hosted by the Met Council, Tenants and Neighbors, Tenants Pack, all these great housing organizations that are fighting for tenants. And um, we're going to talk to the mayoral candidates about tenant stuff. So if you're interested in that, you can check that out on the 27th. Try to pin them down for some specifics. We will definitely be tuning in. Rachel, most people, although affordable housing is really important to them, kind of have no idea what it means. Like, we all know that the rent is too damn high, and we know that there's seemingly some rules where big luxury buildings have to make some units affordable if they want the tax breaks that they get. But what does affordable mean? It doesn't seem like many people can afford these affordable units. What does the mayor want to build in Soho? And can you just, (laughs) can you kind of like break that down for us? I can. Um, This could probably be an entire, you know, college course, but I will try my best. So essentially, you know, affordable housing is subsidized housing. So it's basically like housing that is bankrolled by taxpayer dollars in some way. Um, For a lot of people, affordable housing is, they say it very sarcastically. They're like so-called affordable housing because it's not really affordable for a lot of people who really need it badly. So yes, you're right. Lots of luxury buildings have affordable housing. Um, That is because, you know, developers do get certain benefits in terms of tax breaks for putting in affordable housing. But the income brackets, the actual income restrictions for those units can be really, really high. And we actually, myself and colleagues did a whole long report on this last year, um, calculating your chances of actually getting an affordable unit through the housing lottery. And for folks who don't know, that is the city-run lottery to get an affordable unit um, anywhere in the five boroughs. And the chances are really bad. And they're actually way worse for people who are poorer. So, you know, counterintuitively, if you have more money going into this lottery, you're actually going to have a better chance of getting a unit because there are fewer applicants in that those income brackets. Okay, I'm already getting two in the weeds, but essentially affordable housing is, you know, taxpayer funded housing. It is rare. Uh, we need more of it, uh, even though this, the mayor has built a lot of it in his administration, the city is still in a huge housing crunch. Now, as to how it relates to Soho, uh, the argument there is that it's actually better to build affordable housing, to force developers to build affordable housing in richer neighborhoods. Why? Because developers already want to build there. They already have the incentive to build there. And if the city says, okay, you can build here, you can build higher here and you can build denser here, but you need to build affordable housing, the developers will actually do that. In the past administration, the outgoing administration rather, a lot of affordable housing has been built in low-income neighborhoods. This is something that people may be familiar with. Inwood, East New York, these rezonings that have been happening um, in those neighborhoods. And the argument against doing that is that you're sort of burdening all of those neighborhoods with a lot of new construction and also, you know, affordable housing Yes, technically, like, yes, they need affordable housing, but it's at these incomes that they can't 
really afford. What are some of the incomes? Like, I was just looking at entry-level professional positions in the city right now. And there's jobs that are, you know, advertised for $40,000 a year, $50,000 a year, and that's for eight-hour days. Now, is that the income bracket that's going to be able to... Sometimes. So there definitely are affordable units that are built for like that type of income range. There there are. Um, but you do see units that are going to people who make like 70 or 80, even $100,000, which people see this and they're like, that's not, that's not what I think of affordable housing. That's not what you think of as subsidized housing. The reason, and I should explain that the reason that those units are there is to help pay for the entire building. So it's like, if you've got those higher income brackets, that they actually help cross subsidize the lower income brackets. And people who develop affordable housing will say, we need that. We cannot finance these buildings without that. But yeah, I mean, and I will say, I talk to people who make less than 40 or $50,000 who are making 20 or $30,000. And they're like, you know, I don't even make the minimum for these buildings. So it's a huge problem and the affordable housing really isn't addressing the incredible need in the income brackets that that really need affordable housing. What I'm curious about is what's going to happen when unemployment runs out. Some of these units are for a for a one bedroom or for a studio, we're talking like, you know, what, like $2,500, which seems a bit unrealistic for yeah. anyone who makes less. I, th- I guess you could, you know, if I do some quick calculations, really, really scrape by with 60 doing that, yeah. but like you couldn't yeah. afford much else. No, definitely not. And we found that, um, and this is sort of what sparked our interest in this topic is we noticed that in some of these luxury buildings, the the rents were actually like higher than like the market rent in the neighborhood, in some gentrifying neighborhoods. It was like the affordable rent for these high income units were, <laughs> were actually sort of higher or what you, you know, a little bit more than what you'd find sort of on Craigslist or whatever. But I will say, I just want to caveat that like that issue is a small percentage of the total pool of affordable housing. I would say most affordable housing is for people with much lower income brackets, but um, it's sort of indicative of the, the supply problem with affordable housing. Well, as we enter this new phase, which is going to be like post- unemployment benefit post, you know, Mm -hmm. post eviction moratorium being lifted. Um, As we enter this new phase, and we need all this new housing, what struck me was your latest article um, about Mm. how actually the number of apartments and available units are going down. Your latest piece is NYC's wealthy enclaves lost housing in the past decade as combining of apartments outpaced new construction. Is that possible? It is possible. It does It does not seem like it would be possible, but yes. So very interestingly, in some pockets of the wealthiest neighborhoods in New York, so many people are altering their apartments and combining apartments that net overall in the last decade, they have actually lost units of housing. So um, even though, and I will say the neighborhoods where this is happening is certain areas of the Upper East Side, Upper West Side, downtown Manhattan. So, you know, we've got Soho, we've got West Village, um, the very tip of Manhattan in the financial district, a couple other, you know, neighborhoods elsewhere in the city, but those are sort of the main. You've actually got a loss of housing, even though people in those neighborhoods see tall buildings going up all the time. And there's lots of construction, no one can deny that. But because sort of the thing that you don't see, which is apartment combinations is happening so much, the total 
neighborhood net housing is actually going down over a decade. And the person from the Department of City Planning who actually, you know, was behind this data that the story is based on, they analyzed Department of Buildings records to get this data. Um, He was basically like, you know, people see the vertical change in housing, they see the buildings going up, but they don't see the horizontal change, which is what's changing inside of the existing buildings. And I think that's really important for people to understand. It's not just build, build, build all the time um, in certain neighborhoods where people have the money to, you know, uh, combine apartments, they're actually losing housing. This does not mean that New York City as a whole is losing housing. Um, Over the last decade, New York City added a lot of housing, not very much compared to other cities. We're actually kind of behind on, you know, housing production overall. But you know, every single community district in New York did add housing in the last decade, but in some pockets of these community districts, they lost housing, just to get that clear. So like in the West Village where I'm at, I mean, I can definitely see that when you have all of these people that bought or purchased these buildings or some of these apartments back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and now they're sitting on something that's worth a lot, they sell it, and the people they sell it to kind of have the means and have the money to make it a single dwelling. There are a lot of rich people in these areas. There are a lot of rich people and, you know, they have the right to do this. Um, It's been going on forever. People who live in co-op and condo buildings, you know, this is something that's done. But the problem is, you know, if we're not sort of making so much housing that that issue is erased, meaning that the net housing is actually a plus, a positive, we're adding housing, then, you know, that's a, that's a policy issue. You know, I, I hope that people don't take from this story or this information that the problem is apartment combinations. I think that's going to happen. I think that people should more focus on the supply of housing, right? If you had more housing, <laughs> the alterations wouldn't matter so much. But in these neighborhoods, um, we actually don't have as much housing as people may think. I mean, definitely the pe- some of the people I grew up with that used their parents used to be like the super of a building. So they had uh, that kind of subsidized housing mm-hmm. from the landlord mm-hmm. and things like that. They, they're gone, you know, like it's just a different, it's a much different neighborhood. Um, so the last question I want to ask you is, let's say in relation to some place like Soho. So we know this yeah. place is a place that used to be cheap in the 70s and 80s and then kind of blew up from its reputation and became extremely pricey. Um, the mayor wants to build affordable housing there. So that's a place where we saw a lot of, I, I would say I saw a lot of like just anecdotally co- uh, apartment combinations back when it moved from like industrial to more residential. So Soho is an interesting place in the narrative of housing right now because um, it's a most it's a historic district. It's landmarked. There's not much you can do to build there. Um, but the idea is to use the pockets of Soho that actually can add density, can add buildings to make it possible for developers to do that. Um, the whole idea of kind of changing the the development rules in Soho is actually comes from a place of trying to unsnarl the very weird like zoning laws that exist there. Because as you said, you know, people took industrial buildings and turned them into lofts, sometimes illegally back in the day. And it's sort of like, uh, do we grandfather these people in? What do we do? But in that conversation, you know, housing advocates saw an opportunity to say, well, hold on a second. This is one of the most desirable neighborhoods in the city. Developers really want to build here. Why don't we loosen things up a bit to let them do that? But it's going to be a really big fight. I mean, there are lots of uh, people who live there now who do not want to see the neighborhood changing. They are very scared of change, understandably. Um, 
people who want to preserve the neighborhood. I mean, Soho is a gorgeous, you know, turn of the century, beautiful neighborhood that has those lovely buildings that we all love and those cobblestone streets and it's got a vibe. They don't want that to change either. So it's it's really going to be tough. I wonder if it also comes from some kind of desire to re-diversify like down, areas of downtown Manhattan. Yeah. Like I said, when I was a kid, it just, it wasn't a neighborhood for a lot of low-income people, but there were people who made like a working class living who were able to live here. And that's just I mean, I don't want to date myself, but I will. I was born in 1981, and that's just a really long time ago. So, like, from then mm. until now, that's not possible anymore. And I would be interested to see if any of those affordable units would be able to bring back some of that lifeblood into these areas. One of the main arguments from housing advocates who want to see this happen is a um, desegregation argument. So there's, you know, their argument is if you add affordable housing to Soho, you will bring black and brown people to that neighborhood. Right now, it's one of the whitest neighborhoods in New York City. Um, and, you know, they see rezonings as a real opportunity in rich neighborhoods, I should say, rezonings in rich neighborhoods as an opportunity to um, break up some of the segregation of the city. We have a lot of de facto segregation. So that's a huge argument on their side. But you're absolutely right in that to question the a real affordability of those units. Um, there are people who say, why would we go out of our way to allow affordable housing to be built in Soho? These, these apartments are not going to be really affordable. They're not going to be truly affordable to really low-income people. A, that may not be true. It depends on the level of affordability that they build into whatever they have. And B, um, you know, housing advocates would say something's better than nothing. Some, even if we get a few hundred units, that's better than nothing. That's better than what we've got now. Um, so they're hashing it out. <laughs> they're fighting about it, and we'll see what they come up with. Well, I'm excited to see what they come up with and mostly keep track of it through your reporting, which is awesome. And thank you so much for coming on FAQ and helping us unpack that a little bit. Yeah, hope it helped. Happy to be here. That was really interesting with Rachel. There's so much going on with housing. And really, there's so much going on each week as we're trying to focus on uh, politics with the mayor's race coming up that there are a few things this week we didn't mention that we, we need to quickly touch on that are big deals. First off, a federal court found, again, the 50A, this old state law that was abruptly reinterpreted to protect police personnel records and discipline records from public view was being misapplied and that those records do need to become public which is a, a long overdue victory for, for the forces of transparency and reform. Uh, Cuomo, the governor, has ended up in a tighter and tighter corner when it comes to nursing homes. And uh, what he did there, uh, you had Melissa DeRosa, his chief of staff's more or less confession to state legislators and what was supposed to be a private conversation about how they held off on giving up these numbers about how many people had been in nursing homes had died uh, because the Trump administration was going to do unfair stuff with it, which infuriated the Democrats who control the uh, legislature. And he now has been lashing out on individual legislators and seems to be in a position where it's just harder and harder to justify this. And without Trump as a foil, uh, his retconned explanations for how we ended up here are just not carrying water. I'm hoping we're going to have guests on in the weeks to come to talk more about that. And finally, we had these vaccine maps that finally came out with neighborhood by neighborhood breakdowns. Uh, that are just uh, morally obscene to look at, unsurprising but obscene. 
uh, that show that the areas where the virus hit the worst, which tend to be poor areas, which tend to be areas that have many people of color, are the ones that have the lowest vaccination rates so far. Uh, just indicating how all of this inequity and inequality has been baked into every layer of the cake. And this progressive mayor, at least, has been unable to uh, do much other than talk about that a lot of the time. Anyways, that's a mouthful. Those are all topics we're going to come back to. Let me turn it over for a minute to the uh, People's Pod uh, to give some sense of what uh, the man and woman on the street are saying about uh, Diane Rose. I love New York, yeah. Capital of the world. She's so diverse. I don't know, the overall atmosphere. <laughs> I don't know. You're listening to The People's Podcast, a collaboration between FAQ NYC and NYU journalism students Sarah, Wakas, and myself, Lee. In Diane Morales' interview with FAQ, she proposed extending the public education system from K-12 to K-16. That would mean free tuition in the CUNY college system, enabling underserved communities to access higher education and training for post-COVID jobs. We wanted to know what people thought about that proposal. I think that's a good idea. (laughs) I think access to education is really important and that a lot of people don't have access to it because of money or because of debt and they don't want to be in debt. So I think that's a really good idea. I don't think it would be smart to give somebody who has access to like $100,000 adjusted gross income to free college. Like that's not cost effective for the city. Depends on like income levels. Like can't, can't just give free college to everybody. I think she should. I think that's a good idea. There's a lot of students that can't afford to go to college. So definitely I would agree with that. <laughs> I mean, I, think, I definitely think that sounds great. Um, if they could do it like in other developed countries overseas, then, then why not here, right? I think it's great, but probably she's going to have the, the college, like the free education for citizens. I think we should have like a program thinking about the immigrants also, like people who want to come here to study in the United States. I think it's a good idea, but uh, I think just making it free right off the bat isn't the smartest idea. And uh, she maybe set up a plan to do it over time. So that way when new mayors come in, that plan can't change, make it permanent. It depends what the education is like and stuff like that. I would want it to be well-funded for sure because when something's free, sometimes they don't, they kind of brush it off to the side and they let it dilapidate. (laughs) So it's almost like, I think it's purposely done that way so that people don't like go there and stuff, but yeah. Yeah, I'm a little concerned with the current fiscal state of the city, especially after the pandemic. I I guess I just want to see like some of the financial details first. If we could take some funding that currently like is for things that are a little bit less necessary and put it towards things that are so important, like education. I know I always wanted to go to school in the city, but, you know, a lot of private schools in the city are expensive. But the CUNY system in general is a good way for people who can't really afford high tuitions to, to come in. I think it's good, uh, definitely, because it's too expensive as it is right now. The CUNY uh, system, I think, should allow people who cannot afford some kind of support financially in order for them to be able to study. In her interview with FAQ, Diane Morales stressed the need for integrated mental health support for underrepresented communities. In particular, she wants to train people from the community to serve as peer counselors who are, she said, linguistically and culturally aligned with those they're helping. We wanted to know what people thought about this. 
Yeah, I think that's a good idea because, you know, New York's so diverse that people like to really just kind of stick to their neighborhoods or just people they know, and, and it's just easier to deal with your issues if you can relate. Yeah, I think that's great. And New York City definitely is one of the cities in the world who needs that. We have many people here living alone with mental health issues. So definitely something that the city needs for the citizens and also for the immigrants. I guess it probably comes down to a fiscal question for me again. I think once you have like a strong financial base, you can start kind of thinking about other services and like some you know more luxury items like free counseling and stuff like that. But I think the economy's got to come back first. Yeah, that's something that I would agree with as well. It's expensive. That's another thing that's expensive. Counseling. Underfunded communities could really use that for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. I have seen and I have actually just uh, experienced a lot of people having really scary mental disorders. Yeah, I think that that sounds like a wonderful idea. I mean, I'm just noticing the like contrast as we walk around these like really wealthy communities. Like this area is so wealthy, but then in this community, there's still like people who are sleeping on the streets at night. There's people who like don't have access to the same things. Like all right next to each other, there's like extreme wealth and extreme poverty. So any like systems that we could provide mental health, like school education, to like provide supports for people in need is definitely necessary. And yeah, and if it's free, that's great. As long as the counselors are are still getting paid well and they're getting treated well. As long as the counselors are well educated as well, because, you know, you want someone professional to help with your mental health. In her FAQ interview, Diane Morales talked about divesting from the NYPD and reallocating those funds to help people live in safety and in dignity. We wanted to know what people thought about this idea. Uh, it's a tough question. I mean, NYPD is huge and they do have a lot of money but I also believe in the NYPD and they do protect us. And in order to keep a city like New York protected, you do need to have like a strong force. That's exactly what we've been talking about like as a country this for the past, since like the pandemic started, since May and the protests started. Yeah, I'm all for that. It really depends. I'm really against violence of any kind, but who are you gonna call like if you get robbed or if you are in emergency? The police. Yeah, I mean, the police department can probably spend their money a little more wisely. I once got a ticket for walking through a park after dark when there were 100 other people in that. I was in uh, Washington Square Park at like 2 a.m., just literally walking a block across the park, and they gave me a ticket. Also, the police force do need to to be re-educated as well, though. I feel like they go to school too, too short. So they really, <laughs> I also feel like the police force needs to go undergo another education as well so that they learn how to de-escalate, too. I think that NYPD is a very broken institution. There's got to be an alternative. For example, in the building I live in, as soon as there's a little bit of um, something happens, uh, they just send like 10 fire departments. You know, it's it's a lot. I mean, sometimes I feel it's, it's too much to send 10 cars for something that might be not, you know. My feeling is don't touch the police. Just make the police more efficient, but never touch those those guys because they're still doing a great job and we should support them. I feel like this should have happened a while back ago. <laughs> I'm definitely for the idea of trying different things, alternative responders like counselors and then de-escalating crisis. I work in the school system and I have training. I'm like a trained, I work with kids with disabilities and that's like our training is to de-escalate 
protect them from themselves and harming other people, but it's like de-escalation strategies are effective in helping a kid in crisis. Your first response isn't to hold up a gun to them. It's to like make sure they're safe and then make sure you're safe and then help them calm down. It works. Like I've seen it work before in, in firsthand, so it, it should work for adults too if it can work with kids. Yeah, definitely in favor of that. She should take money out of NYPD and put it into the community system. I don't feel secure, you know, as secure as I used to feel back in the days when the police was, had a different respect. In certain situations, definitely, you can send some sort of counselor um, on a call, but, uh, you know, the dispatcher is going to have to know who to send. They're going to have to know the situation, so they're going to have to... Dispatchers are going to be trained, uh, but maybe, like... NYPD officers could be kind of have some sort of training or classes that mental health counselors go through just so NYPD can see through the eyes of a counselor because I know they're just trained to like protect and use force right away. Finally, we received this voicemail from Tenzin who had this to say about Diane Morales' plan to provide free CUNY tuition to New York City students. Hi, my name is Tenzin, and as a first-generation American and a New Yorker who just graduated from college only four years ago, I know firsthand how stressful it can be to handle the whole FAFSA system and wondering whether or not you can afford to pay for school. I think it's great that Diane Morales is proposing to make the CUNY educational system free for all New Yorkers, and it's a position that I hope more mayoral candidates take up. Investing in the education of the city's youth is so important and will ultimately only help our city's future in the long run. We also received this voicemail from a caller urging a wider view of the entire mayor's race. The New York City story that I would like covered is the New York mayor race. Um, It's such an important issue this year. I think Andrew Yang is a great candidate. I think it's easy to follow him because he's gotten so much press this year. But I'd like to challenge the press to look at other candidates and give other candidates equal coverage, as I do not like the fact that Andrew Yang moved his family out of Manhattan during the pandemic because he was complaining of his small two-bedroom apartment, which would be luxury for any other Manhattanites. Um, So the issues I'm concerned about are crime, safety, and health. And I see the candidate Eric Adams was a former NYPD captain. So I'd love to see more coverage and get to know all the candidates in the race as it is uh, a field of many candidates. So I'm excited to see what will happen during this next year. Thank you for listening to The People's Podcast. If you have anything you would like to share about this episode, Call 917-475-6010 and leave a message. F-A-Q. F-A-Q NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and unknown parts of New York. A special thank you to our guest this week, Rachel Holliday-Smith of The City. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be well, wear a mask, and we'll see you next week.